I feel like I prepared three sermons and then tried to distill them down. Um, that's an awful analogy for some of you who grew up in a teetotaling church. Um, but to try to distill them down. So my prayer is that they will be strong as death, that they will um, be life-giving um, and powerful. And so uh, I'm going to ask God to speak through me to continue our conversation with God. We pray often in this service because God doesn't like start and then check in with us later. He's with us the whole time. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are not far from us, uh, but you're here in this room by the power of your Holy Ghost. And you, uh, Holy Ghost, can do what I cannot do with all the argumentation, with all of uh, the history and all the philosophy and all of uh, the wit and imagery, uh, with every pop culture reference and every joke I can make. I cannot do what only you can do, which is to uh, show people Jesus, uh, to communicate them uh, to uh, Jesus, that they might uh, not just believe your words, but they might believe on Jesus. And so I pray uh, that you would do that, uh, that you would be uh, the great chasm uh, bridge, that you would... Uh, would would super glue us to Jesus, uh, that as I speak, uh, the voice of uh, God might be heard. I pray all of this um, boldly in the name of Jesus, uh, who said if we prayed that you would hear us in heaven and you would answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week, um, we asked the question, uh, is Christianity uh, too narrow? Is Christianity as a religion uh, narrow-minded and intolerant? And one of the, the chief objections uh, to Christianity and to absolute truth claims in general uh, comes up in a famous story that many of you probably heard. It's a parable about an elephant and blind men. I told it last week. But the story goes uh, that there uh, was a giant elephant and four blind men uh, walk up to it. And the first, uh, elef- the first one walks up to the front and he grabs it by the trunk and he says, elephants are like snakes. And then the next blind man runs square into the side of the elephant and he says, no, not like snakes. Elephants are like walls. They're flat and smooth. And then the third blind man walks up to one of the elephant's legs and he says, elephants are like tree trunks. They're round and straight and they go up. And the last one grabs it by the tail and says, elephants are like paintbrushes, except bigger and they curl. All the men see only part of the elephant, and so the parable is told to tell us that all the religions of the world only see part of the picture of God, but no one religion is capable of encapsulating uh, all the truth about God and humanity. And we said uh, that in some sense, the parable is encapsulated entirely compelling. It's, in, it's meant to, to humble us, to humble our world faith. And yet we saw last week uh, that it is told from an arrogant position, which is that of the person who can see all the blind men filling around, but one person who has perspective on the whole elephant. You could only know that truth existed as blind men and an elephant if you could see the whole elephant, which you just told me no human being can do. Christianity, though, is the one religion that says the elephant thing is more or less true. That, that world religions around the globe see parts and pictures of God, but one person outside of history and culture and religion would have to come into history and culture and religion to tell us, to tell every culture and religion on the planet that they only see part of the truth. Only a person who is not blind can tell the blind men the whole picture. This person would have to tell us the bad news, which is that we are blind and that we only see half the picture in order to tell us the good news, that elephants are better than trees or walls or snakes or paintbrushes, that God is, in fact, better than all of our preconceived notions about God. One would have to come into history from outside who had the whole picture, and that is what Christianity claims. So the next time somebody tells you uh, that they believe the elephant and the blind man thing, you can say, great, you should be a Christian. 
Because Jesus is the person from the outside of history that reveals the whole element, that reveals ultimate reality. And the reality is that we are spiritually blind, that we are hopelessly banging about in the dark trying to find our way to God. And yet God comes to us in Jesus to reveal the truth about reality, to reveal fundamental reality. Jesus tells us the truth about God and he tells us about himself. And Jesus does this. He says this almost exact thing over and over again. Uh, His best friend, uh, John, remembers him saying this. As he prayed the night he was going to be murdered, Jesus prayed these words. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I, that's Jesus, have made you known to them. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's John chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. You see what Jesus just said? He said, the world doesn't know you. The world is blind, only sees in part. But I know you, the unique son of God, preexistent from all time. I have perspective on you. I am the one who grew up in the bosom of the father, as James chapter 1 says. And I have made you known. I have revealed the whole picture so that they might know you. I have shown them that they are blind, i.e. the bad news. And I've shown them the good news, which is that the love you have for me may be in them. The gospel of Christianity is not that God puts up with you or that God just doesn't destroy you. It's that God wants to love you as much as God loves, as much as God the Father loves Jesus. The the gospel of Christianity is not that God uh, just loves you in spite of yourself, but that God loves you, that you are welcome here, that God wants you to know him, and that God is convinced. God is relentless about revealing himself to you, about showing you the whole elephant and convincing you that the elephant is better than you ever realized. And so we trust as Christians Jesus to tell us the truth more than we trust our senses and more than we trust our thinking or feeling. But that brings us to a second question, which is, well, if Jesus tells us the truth about God, where do we learn about Jesus? Well, we learn about Jesus, the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. So we come to this huge question, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible to tell us the truth about God? And can we trust the Bible to tell us the truth about reality and humanity? Usually I would stop here and I would start talking uh, to to skeptics and to cynics, and then I would turn and talk to believers. Today I'm going to do the inverse um, because I just want to. And so first to Christians, I want to talk to you from the Bible that you believe about what the Bible says about itself. And then I want to pivot slightly and address some of our cultural questions and concerns regarding the reliability of the Bible. This way we put the important stuff first, and then we use whatever time we have left to talk about some of our concerns. So first, for Christians. First point, I have a bunch of them, like seven. We'll only be here till about three. First point, Jesus trusted the Bible, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so was both the words of human beings and the words of God. Jesus trusted that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so was the words of human beings and God. Two examples. First from Mark chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus is in a debate, and Jesus answers uh, the people who are debating him, and he says this. Jesus answered and began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, and yet David himself said, quote, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath you. 
You see what Jesus just did there in Mark chapter 12, verse 35. He said, David said, in the Holy Spirit, and then quotes Psalm 2. So Jesus believes that the Holy Spirit was speaking through David in the Psalms. Next example, and this one's a little bit more difficult, um, but I think it's really important. Jesus was once asked about marriage, and, and in his teaching about marriage, he quotes Genesis. Uh, and he quotes Genesis uh, chapter uh, 2, and he says, uh, In the beginning... In Genesis, just, just for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Genesis uh, was written um, by Moses or compiled by Moses or originating with Moses. And yet Jesus says, uh, when he quotes this section of Scripture, he says that the one who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's God. That's the one who created them from the beginning and made them male and female. And God said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is saying there in Genesis, it's not just Moses talking. These are not just the words of a human being, but they are the words of God. And so he says, God said it. Next thing I want to make, next point, is that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus didn't come to do away with the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And he believed that he was fulfilling the law at every moment of his life. That he was showing the right application of the Bible, and that he was keeping all of God's promises. To the point where the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of the promises of the Old Testament are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Third point about Jesus is trust in the Bible. Jesus believed you could only understand his message and his ministry with the help of the Bible. You could not understand who Jesus was or what he was doing without the help of the scriptures. He says this in, uh, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. After his resurrection, he comes back, and it says that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. <laughs> Who else in history could do that? Like, that's an insane sentence. Jesus said, let me start with Genesis. We'll work to Malachi. Let me tell you how this is all about me. He's either the most arrogant human being to ever live, or is the fulfillment of the prophecies, which means he is the Messiah, the one, the coming Christ. He says, you can't understand who I am unless you know the Bible. He himself used scripture to understand his own role. And so he, that was how he fulfilled it, is he would say, the Messiah had to suffer and die. And so he suffers and dies. Next thing, fourth thing that Jesus believed. Jesus believed you could only understand the scriptures if you knew Jesus personally right in the same conversation that I just quoted from Luke chapter 24, Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus opened the disciples' minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Jesus is the one who opens us to understand the Scriptures by the power of the Holy Ghost. And it's possible to read these books, it's possible to read all 66 of the books in the Bible and to have them profit you nothing apart from the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working in your heart to communicate Jesus to you. If you do not know Jesus, then these books may entertain you, they may make you feel guilty, but you don't understand them unless you know Jesus. And, that may, and so Jesus said this in John chapter 5, talking to a group of uh, Pharisees, these men who had studied the Bible religiously, who memorized it, who knew it backwards and forwards. He said to them in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think 
that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify, testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me. Fifth thing that Jesus believed is that Jesus believed that the Bible was inspired, that he was here to fulfill the Bible and not to abolish it, uh, that he believed you could only understand who he was with the help of the Bible, that Jesus believed you could only understand the Bible with his help. And fifth, that you believe, Jesus believed the scriptures were more powerful than miracles to give you faith and to communicate God. Jesus believed the scriptures were more powerful than miracles to give you faith. They were all you need. That miracles, if you needed miracles, and every miracle wouldn't be good enough. If you said, God, I need a miracle, it wouldn't be to believe. It wouldn't be good enough. He tells this famously in Luke chapter 16 in a, in a passage about a blind man, I mean, not a blind man, a poor man and a rich man. Uh, it's just a story Jesus told about a rich man uh, who Every day there was a beggar outside of his gates named Lazarus, and Lazarus was this, this poor beggar. And they both die, and Lazarus goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell, not because he was rich and not because he was poor, other things involved. But they get there, and the rich man there in torment looks up, and he starts to command the people in heaven to serve him because his heart has not changed, because he is still uh, in rebellion from God. And he, uh, he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brothers so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Father Abraham said to him, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Here we see a man in hell asking for uh, someone to go and warn people about the coming judgment and about the nature of reality, about the way the world works. And, and Father Abraham says, they've got Moses and the prophets. God's already given them that. And he says, no, not Moses. They need something else. How about if a person comes back from the dead to tell them? And he says, if, if Moses and the prophets not good enough, they won't believe if a person comes back from the dead. This, this right here is enough. The Bible is sufficient for our faith, for our connection with God. Jesus always accompanied miracles with teaching. Even at the resurrection, Jesus taught about the resurrection from the Bible. And so if you're looking for faith, if your faith is weak, if you're looking for Jesus to meet, if you're looking for Jesus, you meet him where he said he would meet you. Meet him at the well that is in his Bible Find him waiting to serve you the bread of heaven and his scriptures spread liberally throughout. Next thing I want to show to believers is that the apostles believed that each other's testimony was reliable. I don't have time. I mean, I'm not asking you to turn to all these places, but I think this is fascinating. And I don't know that most believers realize this. Most of us realize that the people in the New Testament thought the Old Testament was scripture. But people... But the apostles themselves recognized one another as writing scripture. We see this in 2 Peter, a few chapters after what Jennifer wrote. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter is talking about Paul. And he says this, he says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. You can remember that because it's 3.16. And you at least know John 3.16. And if you don't know that, then you know Stone Cold Steve Austin 3.16. And some of you don't know either of those, and you're in trouble. He writes the same way in all his letters. Paul writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Listen to this. 
Paul's letters contain something that is some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. You hear that phrase, the other scriptures? That should like stop and arrest you. What did Peter just call Paul's writings? He called them scripture. That's incredible to me. That Peter trusted what Paul was writing as scripture and he gave you permission to be confused by it. Like, doesn't that like, comfort you a little bit? That like Peter is like, dude, sometimes Paul starts talking and I have no idea what he's talking about. Like we're in like Romans chapter 11 and I'm like, I, can we go back to the, the, the other stuff? Because this stuff, I, I don't know. That should comfort you. And that should comfort you. And lastly, Jesus and his apostles believe that faith only exists in so much as one surrenders to God's will by obeying the Bible. That faith cannot exist apart from obedience. It does not exist. Faith only exists in, as obedience to the scriptures. Jesus said it famously at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, if anyone hears my words and puts them into practice, he is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. He hears my words and puts them into practice. The two have to go together or it's not faith. Jesus is not asking for your rational assent. He is not handing you spiritual multiplication tables. James, the brother of Jesus, learned it from his brother, and he said it this way. He said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's James chapter 1, verse 22. Some of you might need to like write that one down. James 1, 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so I'm going to finish the first sermon right now with applications. And I'm going to give you a whole other sermon because I'm generous. Initial applications. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple, your attitude to the scriptures should reflect Jesus' attitude. Do you think of the Bible the way Jesus thought of the Bible? Do you savor it? Do you memorize it? Do you let the scripture bring its weight down on your life? Do you let this book tell you who you are and what you should do? Or do you get that outside of your own overflow of your imagination or your heart or whatever your impulses tell you to do? Do you live out of faith or do you live out of your gut? Because frankly, your gut and my gut is not reliable. If you don't know that, then go hang out with a two or a three-year-old and see the stuff they think they need. You're just a two or three-year-old spiritual toddler. And me too. I will never advance past the like nursery of the spiritual world until Jesus comes and takes me to glory. And the way we can do this, I'm going to give you uh, two illustrations. I've given you uh, these before, but you and I are like an amnesiac, and we have to be reminded of our identity and God's love over and over again. And I'll give you two illustrations of this. The first is uh, a movie that some of you have seen. It's also a book uh, called The Notebook. And in this movie, in this book, uh, there's a woman, and she has dementia, and she can't remember anything about it. And so every day her husband comes and reads her their story, the love story of their whole life together. And then as she hears these words, every now and then something clicks. Every once out of 10 or 15 days, something happens and she realizes who she is and who this man is. And she falls in love with this man who comes to her again and again to tell her who she is. 
Maybe that's too serious for you, and so you're more of an Adam Sandler fan. In 50 First Dates, you get uh, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. It's a wonderful combination, but Drew Barrymore also has amnesia, can't remember anything. And uh, she falls in love with Adam Sandler every 24 hours. And so every day he wakes up and woos her and tries to convince her uh, that she should love him. And, and it gets exhausting, and so he eventually makes this video for her because she can make no new memory. She lives 24 hours and then forgets everything, 24 hours and forgets everything. And so he makes this video. And she wakes up first thing in the morning, she puts it in, and it tells her, this is who you are, this is what happened to you, this is what's wrong with you, but I'm your husband and I love you, and this is our beautiful daughter, and these are our parents, and this is how the world works, and I'm so glad you're here, now let me love you today. Please just let me love you today. The Bible is that for us. It reminds us who we are and what we're about, and we forget again and again and again, so we have to go back to it. The last thing, the last illustration I want to use is this. Do you, that uh, an old Christian, a North African Christian, a dude named uh, Augustine or, or Augustine, St. Augustine, if you're fancy like that, he once said this. He said, the scriptures are our dispatches from home. The scriptures are our letters from home. The scriptures are our letters from home. And I remember uh, that my wife, uh, her grandma, um, my mother-in-law is here. Her mom uh, is 97 years old, and she has the shoeboxes of letters from Second World War where she and her husband, uh, Pop, wrote back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to keep him and her grounded in reality and to keep their love fresh while he was away at war. Well, you and I live in a war zone, and God has sent us letters to keep our love fresh, and these are the dispatches from home. This is the mail that has been delivered as we slog it out some days in this battlefield we call earth. Are you reading them, or are you just like folding them and throwing them in your duffel bag? Let me stop and just look at you parents for a second, and I don't mean to guilt you in this. I've just been convicted of this myself. I am scared to death of leading my kids spiritually. Like, I would rather preach to all of you and 4,000 other people. I'd rather go uh, to Carter Finley and preach there than to try to lead my three boys in a devotion at our breakfast table. So let me ask you, are you intercepting the letters God's sending to your kids so that they never even get a chance to read them because you, like me, are just too afraid? I'd cite Les Miserables here. But the truth is more of us are familiar with rom-coms than classic literature. And so again, in the notebook, you remember in the notebook, Noah sends uh, Allie one letter a day for a year, but she never gets any of them because her mom has kept them and intercepted them and held them. And so she has no idea that Noah still loves her. I can't help but wonder how many of our kids have so little knowledge of God because we've intercepted God's letters to them instead of being courageous and bold and trying our best to sit down with our kids at home because it's just easier to bring them here and maybe somebody trained in children's church can do a better job than we can. This is all me. Maybe y'all don't struggle with that. I'll just preach to me for a minute. So lastly, just try reading the Bible. Just try it. Man, I'm... Just try reading it. you got the weekly Bible reading plan in every bulletin. Pick a section of the gospel. Read it each day. And I'll just give you a simple way to understand it. I'm going to ask four questions of any scripture in the Bible. And they're easy to remember because they're shaped, I think of them like a cross. you got a cross. It's shaped roughly like me. The top of it points up. So I ask the question, what does this Bible teach me about God? 
The bottom of the cross points to the earth. And so I say, what does this teach me about human beings? And then you got the left and the right. And so I ask, is there a command to follow or is there an example to imitate? God, man, command, example. God, man, command, example. God, woman, command, example. You can ask that anytime. If there's a command, what should you do? Follow it. <laughs> if there's an example to imitate, follow it. Some of the examples in the Bible are not for you to follow. They are bad examples meant to warn you. Don't follow all of them. Ask yourself, good example, bad example. The ones where a dude takes a second wife, always bad example. That's for free. All right. But if we're honest, and I want to take the next few minutes before we head to communion table, and I want us to tarry at the table, but I want to take a few minutes to, to address some of our concerns. Many of us struggle with the applications above because we have serious questions about the reliability of the Bible that are based in three primary areas, history, science, and culture. And those are serious questions, and all serious questions are welcomed here and in heaven. So let's stop and examine a few of those questions for just a second. You may be thinking to yourself, Andrew, all those Bible quotations that you just spent all that time littering around are all well and good, but the Bible has been copied so many times and translated hundreds of times that we cannot be reasonably sure that the Bible we have is the Bible that was written. More likely, it was altered to say what church leaders wanted it to say. Let me just give you some facts, just from history. We have over 5,600 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek alone. And they start from as early as the second century. If you combine all manuscripts we have over all languages, we have over 24,000 manuscripts in different languages. And not only that, we could reproduce nearly all of the New Testament from quotations. We have 32,000 quotations of the Bible in the church fathers and mothers before the Council of Nicaea, before Constantine was ever born. The church had already quoted the Bible 32,000 times that we still have. The Dan Brown myth in the Da Vinci Code that the Emperor Constantine rewrote the Bible is just historically not true. We have more and earlier copies of the New Testament than any other ancient document. For comparison's sake, there's documents that very few of us ever question, like Plato or Aristotle. Did you know we have seven copies of Plato? Seven. I just told you we have 24,000 copies of the New Testament. We have seven of Plato. And the earliest one we have was written in 900 AD. That's 1,200 years after Plato died. That's the earliest copy we got. 1,200 years. Aristotle, we have a few more copies. We have, um, we have 49 copies of Aristotle's work. 49. And the earliest one we have was written in uh, 1100 A.D., which means it was written, it was copied 1,400 years after Aristotle died. To put that in perspective, it's as if, we all, if all, the only Bible we ever had was the King James, that's about where we would be with Aristotle's work. These 5,600 Greek copies of the New Testament that I pointed out, those 5,600 Greek copies agree to 99.5% accuracy and not a single important doctrine or event is called into question by the 0.5 percent discrepancy so historically you can trust the bible you have is the words the apostles wrote but there's another cultural myth that is, that's at work often 
It's commonly believed that the New Testament Gospels originated as oral traditions of various church communities around the meditation, meditation, the Mediterranean. These stories about Jesus were shaped by those communities to address the questions and needs of their particular communities, and the leaders made sure that Jesus said what they wanted him to say. These oral traditions were passed down over the years, evolving through the addition of various legendary materials. Finally, long after the actual events, the Gospels assumed written form, and by then it was almost impossible to know what degree, if any, the Gospels represented the actual historical events. You've probably heard this myth, this thought, that by the time Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are writing, they've mixed together so much legend and fact that it's not actually reliable. We can't tell what actually happened and what the disciples just said happened. But in a, in a landmark book, a guy named Richard Balkum, in a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, shows that the Bibles were written within the lifetime of hundreds of eyewitnesses, and that the writers actually point to witnesses at different points. We heard uh, Peter say, we were eyewitnesses of this. We saw it, and then he quotes the voice of God coming down from heaven. In Mark chapter 15, we get these ridiculous details that are there to show that this is a reliable eyewitness account. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark says, when he's talking about Jesus being killed, he says that the man who helped carry Jesus' cross, that's Simon of Cyrene, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why tell us that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus unless Mark's church knows Alexander and Rufus? Or at least Alexander and Rufus are somewhere wandering around and so they can say, hey, Alexander, Rufus, you vouch for this. I didn't make it up. Your daddy carried that cross. You remember? The Apostle Paul, when he's trying to convince the Corinthian church to believe in the resurrection, does not say just believe, just take it on faith that Jesus rose from the dead. He says there were more than 500 people who saw Jesus alive, and most of them are, alive, are still alive today. The four Gospels were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letters are even earlier than that, written between 15 and 25 years after Jesus died. And they contain in them quotations of materials written within three to five years of when Jesus died. These documents were either written by, their, by apostles themselves, eyewitnesses, or they were written by the disciples of apostles writing down their teachers' memories for them. What's impressive about this, just to keep this in historical perspective, is that within 150 years of Jesus' life, 42 different authors mention the name of Jesus. 42 mention Jesus' name, including nine non-Christian sources. By comparison, the emperor while Jesus lived was a guy named Tiberius Caesar. He is mentioned by 10 people. The emperor. Like, you think Donald Trump is powerful? Like, given history, 10 people might remember him 2,000 years from now. Someone as famous as Alexander the Great is only mentioned by five different sources. Alexander the Great, who conquered the entire known world, mentioned five different people, and not one of them is an eyewitness. Our main source for Alexander the Great's life is a book called The Life of Alexander, written by a dude named Plutarch. Some of you took Humanities, and you know these names. It was written 400 years after Alex died. So let me just put it bluntly. Bluntly. We have more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than we do for the death of Alexander the Great at age 33. 
or maybe you saw the Da Vinci Code and you're like, well, didn't the church choose these gospels out of a bunch of possibilities, silencing other gospels, the Gnostic gospels as they're often called, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary? This will be the last fact I give you. And then I'll figure out a way to give you the rest of this second sermon online. I'll videotape myself. What do y'all call that? Facegrams or Instachats? Factually, the Gnostic Gospels are written much later than the Bible Gospels. The most famous of these other Gospels is the Gospel of Thomas. You've probably heard about it on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or in Dan Brown's book. The Gospel of Thomas is a translation from a Syriac document. The Syriac has been shown by scholars and is universally uh, agreed that it could not have been written earlier than A.D. 175. That's a hundred years after the four Gospels in your Bible were written. A hundred years later. So one dude, a guy named Adam Gopnik, he says this way, writing in a, in a magazine you may have heard of called The New Yorker. He says, the Gospel of Thomas could no more challenge the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document written during the Civil War in Ohio defending King George during the Revolutionary War could challenge the basis of American democracy. Because it's too late. It was written so far afterwards. It's like somebody in the Civil War saying, we should be British. And everybody in America saying, yeah, I settled that a while ago, boss. That's pretty much how the Christians defended themselves against the Gospel of Thomas. Right? No! You missed that train. But we get so much myth mixed into our history that we start to take it as fact and we doubt the reliability of this book based on stuff that is not factually true. The same is true of scientific and, and cultural assumptions and biases that prejudice against this book. But the main reason we do not trust this book, the main reason we do not trust this book was expressed wittily by a Danish guy. His name's Soren Kierkegaard. He said it this way. I love his words. Just listen to this. He said, the Bible's very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. The reason we don't like this book the reason we come up with games from history or culture or science to dismiss this book is because we understand that as soon as we admit that this book has bearing on our lives, we have to change the way we live. We have to get out of the driver's seat. Jesus cannot be our co-pilot anymore that we calmly ignore like we do Siri. We've got to let him take over the wheel. One American preacher, a dude named Billy Sunday, said it very, very glibly. He said, the reason you don't like the Bible, you old sinner, is because that book knows all about you. Friends, I want to ask you this. Are you avoiding the Bible because you want to avoid Jesus so that you can stay in charge of your life? If so, you may not be a Christian. Because Christians admit that I don't know how to run my life. So Jesus, take the wheel, 
other than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and we bow down. And we admit we're blind. That we make up all kinds of foolish myths about you. That left to our own devices, every religion on the planet gets just the tiniest, silliest picture of you. We thank you that one who can see, Jesus, has shown us the whole picture. And we submit to what he says about us, that we're sinners. But we also submit to what he says about us, which is that we are saved, that we are loved, that we are children of God, that the cross was good, the cross was good enough, that we're home. Maybe you find yourself believing that for the first time, or maybe you thought you believed it for a long time and you're realizing, no, I've been saying I believed in Jesus, but I've been running my own life. And you want to surrender. You can become a disciple of Jesus right now with a simple prayer. It's as easy as ABC. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe Jesus died on the cross to save you and to connect you with God. And C, committing to following Jesus' way of life because he tells us the truth. You can do that with a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I admit I've been running my own life and avoiding you as much as I can. But I see now that you loved me enough to interrupt my story and die on a cross to save me. And so I commit to following you with whatever time I have left on this planet. Thank you for loving me. Amen. Friends, we come to the moment where we worship God in a unique way. We give God uh, tithes and offerings, not because God needs them. God's not broke. This is about us surrendering our lives to Jesus, starting with our monies first. So come, let us worship God.